0: Well, it's a joy to be with you on Christmas Eve. Last year, it was the privilege of being able to be with you on Christmas, so grateful that these two last years are falling uh, so close to the actual date. If we're looking at our Bibles this morning in Matthew 1, we're departing from our time of study in First Timothy. It seems appropriate on this Christmas Eve to look at the birth of our Savior Christ. This time of year... Even last night as my family came home from a family celebration and we drove through Blanco and then we drove through Johnson City and we spent just a few moments pulling off the main highway there and looking at all the different lights. We're struck by the time of season and the celebration of something. It seems at least that many people are more happy. They drink more hot chocolate. They spend more time with one another. I remember growing up in Dallas going over a street or two to a neighborhood that seemed to uh, be completely entranced with the competition of who can have the most lights on their house. To the extent that one house had every seemingly square inch with a light. They had covered every part of the house with lights culminating in what seemed to be a spectacular Christmas show. And yet behind one of those delightfully decorated doors behind seemingly every one of those delightfully decorated doors is some measure of pain is some measure of conflict or suffering or loneliness and not just for the unbeliever but even for the believer Ebenezer Scrooge seems to have the most correct out of any of us and at least his attitude matched his language It almost seems a requirement at this time of the year to be happy, to be jovial, to be merry. And there certainly is plenty of reason to be happy and merry. And yet for many, the joy is wrapped around the season, the presents, the the lights, the festivities, the parties, the food, the circumstances. All of that joy being wrapped around just a few days that will close here in the next day or two and then you're left with none of that joy because it didn't go with the season it didn't fade it didn't carry on through the season faded and so did the joy the merriness for many of christmas is circumstantial and yet the circumstances of the holidays are often not merry Maybe the death of a loved one, the loss of a job, relational tension. And with all of that, we're supposed to be happy when we somehow then drive by the local nativity scene as we're in conflict with our wife or as the kids are screaming in the back of the car. Everyone stop! Let's all sing Joy to the World. And yet it may be helpful to remember that the surrounding circumstances of the announcement by the angels was anything but Mary was anything but easy. It was quite hard and the hardship was only going to increase. Mary and Joseph had a baby. It was a a scandalous birth. They would go on to probably be ridiculed by their neighbors. Jesus' uh, birth not only was scandalous, he was born to, to die. He was born in poverty. He was born for conflict and for pain and for a murderous crucifixion. An unjust murderous crucifixion. He was rejected by peers. He was abandoned by his disciples. He was turned away by his family. Mary would watch her son grow and then she would watch her son die on a cross while all her other children thought their brother was insane. How does this good news that we celebrate today and as Christians every day connect with great joy that we've even sung about this morning our joy, brothers and sisters is not by God's grace connected to the circumstances of this season our joy during Christmas is, is not connected to whether or not you're going to get the present that you want tomorrow morning or whether you not you get a present at all We're looking at Matthew 1. I want to offer to you by way of a a sentence, a theme for this passage. Christmas is the true story of an unnatural birth to accomplish a supernatural work for a glorious worship. Christmas is the true story of an unnatural birth to accomplish a supernatural work For a glorious worship. Well how do we unpack that from Matthew 1. That's what we'll spend our time for the next few minutes doing. First of all an unnatural birth. You see this birth in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Meaning they were engaged in a sense. They were not married. They had not had the relations. Before they came together she was found to be with child From the Holy Spirit. An unnatural birth. This was not as God designed it. This was the Son of God, not the Son of Joseph. Notice what you see is He was the Son born of Mary, but not of Joseph. He was of divine conception. God had to do it through a virgin. We're sons of Adam, we're daughters of Eve, and sons of Adam and daughters of Eve are incapable of birthing anything but an imperfect child. And so you have a son by divine conception. Mary is Christ's mother, but through divine intervention by God, we see that Jesus Christ is the son, is, has the ultimate fatherhood, fatherhood in God. Augustine sets it this way. He by whom all things were made was made one of all things. The Son of God by the Father without a mother became the Son of Man by a mother without a small f father. The Word who is God before all time became flesh at the appointed time. The maker of the sun was made under the sun. He who fills the world lies in a manger, great in the form of God, but tiny in the form of a servant. This was in such a way that neither was his greatness diminished by his tininess, nor was his tininess overcome by his greatness. Now this unnatural birth is more than just An unnatural birth in the sense that it was by divine conception. It was also unnatural in that it was foretold. I don't know about you, but when a young man and a young lady get married, they don't typically sit down and say, we're going to have a child four thousand years from now. We're not typically told of, of this child. That we're going to have. We're delighted when God blesses us with the children. But this one was told as much as 4,000 years prior. If you look at Matthew one one, We see the book of the genealogy of, of Jesus Christ. This book of Matthew written to the Jews. Jesus, a common Jewish name. Meaning Savior. And then yet here Christ, the Anointed One. The Messiah. He was of the son of David. He was of the son of Abraham. Isaiah the prophet, as we see in verse 23, telling us, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. If we had time this morning, we could we could go from Genesis 1-1 to Matthew 1-1 and trace how this is an uncommon, an unnatural birth. And that all of history was pointing to this time. In fact, all of history hinged upon this very moment that the son of God would come and he would come as not only the savior, but he would come as the anointed king. He would come as the one who was foretold to Abraham to be the blessing to all nations, to every people. He would come as the son of David, the, who would rule forever as the king, who would continue to be on the throne as this promise to David's family. And so when we get to not only Matthew 1.1 1, 1, and even John 1 the Word became flesh and dwelt among us that might be the simplest of sentences with the most profound implications. That the Word, that the Son of God took on flesh. He had fingerprints. He breathed. He felt pain like you and like me. That God sent his son to become man I thought about preaching an entire sermon on just he became flesh three words and we could go hours on those words we don't have time this morning but we have to stop and contemplate the thought that God sent his son in the form of human flesh An unnatural birth. And there's many other reasons why it was unnatural. Few babies are born in stables. Few are placed in mangers. Recently when Lucy and I had the blessing of going to Israel and seeing mangers. It wasn't the nice, soft, warm, wooden little haystack as we think of it. It was a hard block of rock. Hollowed out. Is what typically those mangers were. And here Christ has this rude and uncommon entry into this fallen world. The humblest of births for the greatest of kings. But he came for a supernatural work. Point number two, a supernatural work. Notice verse 21. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. If the birth of Christ had been in any other way, if it had been in any other form than through an unnatural divine conception, we would be those to be most pitied. Sitting here on Christmas Eve, tomorrow morning on Christmas Day, it makes no sense if Jesus is like us in the sense that he was born of a husband and a wife, he was born of a of a man and of a woman. Of sinful man and sinful woman. And yet he wasn't. And he isn't like us. He was in the form of us, but not like us. He was the God-man. He was uniquely and individually qualified for the one job that, that no other human being could before or since do or fulfill. And that is to save God's people from their sin and even God himself. This is his unique work to save his people from their sins. And he has completed that supernatural work. The God man is, is no longer the babe and a humble and rude beginning. God's plan for salvation of his people appeared to men in the form of a baby in a manger, but it culminated on a cross. The song, the gospel song says it well, holy God in love. Became perfect man to bear my blame. On the cross he took my sin. And by his death I live again. From our point of view this morning. The the birth of Jesus is no more exciting than the, the dwindling presence under the tree. Unless we recognize that our sin before God requires a savior. All men the Bible tells us have fallen short of the glory of God. That doesn't mean that you're as bad as I am or I'm as bad as you are. That doesn't mean I'm as bad as the the guy sitting in prison for multiple murders. But it does mean that every man's sin is bad enough to completely corrupt us. It does mean that every one of us save Christ in our sin. Whether it's small and tiny. Or whether it's magnificent in the world's eyes requires the punishment for that sin. Requires that the wrath of God and all the righteousness of God and all the holiness of God bear itself upon that sin. And if our sin is simply just a mistake or is just another oops or is just another uh-oh, then what is this season? If your sin is is, is trivial in your mind, then I can tell you with great surety that you will have more joy tomorrow morning at opening a gift wrapped in paper that will burn, the paper that is, than the work of Christ for you. Do you recognize your sin? Even this week, do you recognize that that Christ came to save you and did save you from that sin? Are you struggling with, with joy upon this Christmas Eve? then I'll tell you, don't go shopping. Don't turn on the Christmas carols. Don't light a candle. Don't even go to church. Open your Bible and look at the work of Christ for you. That is where the joy lies. Do you recognize yourself as a sinner this morning? Do you see your need for a Savior? And I'm talking to you as the Christian this morning. Imagine, if you will, a a man who is just delightfully, in his own mind, swimming in a river, in a pool, wherever you like. Enjoying the water. And then the next thing he knows, all of a sudden he is is on his back. And he's being grabbed and and pulled to shore. And as he arrives at shore and he's thrown upon the, the land and he rolls over and someone's shoving his fist into his chest. And he says, "What are you doing?" The lifeguard says, "Sir, you were drowning. I wasn't drowning. I was I was enjoying the water. Oh no, sir, you were drowning. I watched you or three times, and your arms were flailing, and you're spitting water out. You see, unless we realize that our sin has done way more than drown us, it has killed us. Then why why Christ? Why the, why Christmas?" What's the need for it? Genesis 3 tells us can you imagine Adam and Eve they hadn't just committed one sin they they not only they't only disobeyed they they then deceived and then they tried to cover up and then they they blamed and they just they went right on down the line. They took out large amounts of credit on their sin. And they spent all of it right away. And yet here even in Genesis 3. God foretelling the the wonder of the, the Savior that would come. The gospel even then in the earliest of times. Just as sin was coming into the world. Came into the world. God had already set forth the plan. To save his people from their sins. And yet. Here now, 4,000 years later, the birth of Christ comes. And even a few years following that, the intended purpose would be fulfilled. And he did save his people from their sins. And so the question for us this morning is, are you one of his people? Are you one of his people? It says, that's what it says in verse 21. He will save his people from this. Are you one of his people? Pastor, I don't know. You can know. Very clearly you can know this morning. The scriptures say that you can know, that you can know whether or not you are one of his people by whether or not you believe that Jesus Christ is the only means by which you have your sins forgiven. Well, how do I know if I believe? Scripture answers that question as well. Your love is going to change. You now love God more than your sin. In fact, your love for sin turns to disgust and now hatred for that sin. Your love for yourself turns to love for others. Your love for this world turns to a love for the Father. Your love for God is seen in your love to obey Him. All this because of a belief and a faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Not only being born, but then dying on a cross. Taking the punishment for the sin that you and I deserve. Being laid in an empty tomb, in the grave for three days. And then because of his sinless perfection, rising from the dead, in the flesh, walking, talking, eating, 40 days. Making clear to the world that he was no longer in that grave. And even now, having ascended to the heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father. Where he is now in the flesh, awaiting the time appointed by God to return to this earth and judge the world for all of eternity. I'm simply articulating what 1 John chapter 5, 1-5 through 5 says so much more clearly. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever's been born of Him. Will you repent of your sin and receive by faith the saving grace of Jesus Christ to pay for your sins? An unnatural birth for a supernatural work. This is a work only Christ could do. And he did it perfectly. Praise the Lord. But why? Well, he did it for a glorious worship. And we don't see that as clearly, maybe in Matthew 1 or verse 18 through 25, a glorious worship. It seems that the son born of Mary under the humblest of circumstances who would die a cruel death under humble circumstances was raised to life and glorious beauty having defeated sin and death. And yet we don't quite see the worship that I've just said would be there. And yet let's look a little closer. Notice he's the son of David. What does that mean? The son of David, a king. Matthew 1.1 1, 1 begins with an articulation of a king and the humblest of circumstances that would be all the way in Matthew 28 concluded with worship of the highest circumstances. Our vision of the baby Jesus often brings about this thought of a, of a weak and helpless infant with his arms raised toward his mother. I mean, uh, God... Go look at any manger scene and you see a little baby with his arms outstretched toward his mother Mary. And maybe even, probably you've heard articulated, outstretched to you. Receive him, just, just embrace him. And as he grows up, even in our minds, we really never let that image go. He's still the little one who just, who needs us to hold him. Needing us to love him. And yet what scripture clearly proclaims is he does not need us to love him. We need him to love us. If this was just a baby, even if it was a a perfect baby, the results would not have been one of worship. This This is important for us. Do we simply see him as the baby holding out his arms for us to accept him and hold him as if he needed that? Or do we see him as the son of God Who is the king to whom we are to bow our knee. This is the disparity between the baby in the manger. And the realization that this is the son of God. The king in that same manger. And he has come to us. Emmanuel as it says in Isaiah 7. God with us. He has come in low estate. But in the greatness of the perfect king over all. And he has come. And he has come for you. And he has come for me. He has come for us. Notice, Matthew 2, we have this magi that comes, we're not sure when they actually do come, some assume probably rightly that it was some years after he was born, but what do they do? They come to worship him. That's verse 8 of chapter 2. Go and search diligently for the king, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. That's that's Herod. Why did they come? in order to worship him verse 2 of chapter 2 for who where is he who has been born king of the jews for we saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him Matthew 28 verse 17 the end of the life of Christ he's he's been Crucified on the cross. He has been resurrected from the dead, and as he then begins right before his ascension into heaven, we're told in Matthew twenty eight, seventeen. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. He is the king. So are you bowing your knee to the King? And again, I'm not speaking dumb believer, I'm speaking to believer. He has saved you. Is your knee bowed and worshipped to Him this morning? There is not another more worthy of worship. And I don't know how to articulate to you, other than what I've already said, the beauty of Christ, who deserves all your worship this morning. We... We, we are we are taught we are we are bred in America we are bred in Texas that we we can do it all that that bowing our knee to anyone is is, is somehow too humbling doesn't bring us any pleasure it doesn't bring us certainly any any delight. And yet, and yet the, the, the greatest joy for you, the believer, is, is continually, day by day, recognizing that, that your greatest joy is the fact that you have the ability to be on your knees before the King. That you have audience before the King because of the Christ who has brought you into relationship with God the Father. Who stands at the right hand of the throne and says, He has every right to stand here. He has every right to kneel here before you, Father, because of my work for Him. My work for her. Oh, I pray that we get that message each day. The glory of being the, the, the delight, the, the great privilege of being able to bow the knee to the King. There is no one more worthy of worship. Brothers and sisters, we're told in Luke chapter 2 that the angels in the announcement declared glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those With whom he is pleased. You see, our peace is not based upon our circumstances. And so behind every lighted door or unlit door that you might pass this evening, where there is, where there is suffering and where there is conflict and where there is pain, for that door that is, that has been granted the grace of the blood of Christ, that family who has, who has the saving work of Christ been given to them, There is peace that reigns. There is peace that reigns. So does peace reign in your heart this morning. Whether you realize it or not. If you are saved with the blood of Christ. That peace is there. We have a confident hope this day. Come what may. Because Jesus Christ. The babe in the manger. The divine king in human flesh. Accomplished his work. And was greatly glorified by the Father. Jesus Christ, the Holy One, the Chosen One, set apart for the salvation of sinners. An unnatural birth for a supernatural work, for a divine worship. That is the true story of Christmas. And by God's grace is the one that we celebrate, and I trust we will continue to celebrate Not only today and tomorrow, but each day of this week and each day of this year and each day of next year and all the days of our life. Because it is a story that is so wonderful, it transcends all of time. Let's pray. Father, the glory of the work of Christ defies the ability to explain in the human English language. There's, there's no there's no language on this earth that can accurately describe and display the glory of the birth of Christ there's no preacher no matter how passionate articulate or well studied that can that can articulate and communicate the glory of the word of god displaying declaring to us the birth of our savior so I in no way assume, Father, that I have done justice to this. I'm so grateful, Father, for your Holy Spirit that helps and does the work of laying upon the heart the truth of your word, and I trust that it will be done so well. Oh, Father, we, we should be, yet we're oftentimes not overwhelmed and overcome. By the fact that we have been saved. That we have been given eternal life. That we've been not only saved from the wrath of God. We've been saved to children of God. We've not only had your wrath removed. But we've been blessed by your love. That is unable to be comprehended. Father, I I plead your throne this morning that you might set firmly upon our hearts in some measure the eternal weight of, of what we see in Matthew 1. Father, we're going to spend eternity in great delight and glory and Growing in our understanding of the joy and privilege it is to be named as a child of God. Or we will spend eternity wondering how we got it all wrong. And I pray, Father, that you would, if there is someone here this morning not who has not been saved from their sin. That you would set upon their hearts the necessity... Of allowing you to deal with that sin. Oh Father I pray that as we even now sing joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Father we wouldn't have received that king on our best day. Oh but we thank you for your grace. That not only has us receiving the king. But worshipping the king. Delighting in the king. Submitting to the king proclaiming the good news of the King. And strengthen us for this proclamation, Father, that in our word and our deed, our thoughts, we might proclaim the good news of the King. We're citizens, undeserving, but so grateful for it. We ask these things in the precious name of Christ. Amen. Amen.